0: All right. So hopefully you have the outline, and we're uh, taking one week off from the series we've been doing. We've been doing a series called "Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity," in which we're looking at fifteen major emphases of the Bible. That uh, our thesis is that while uh, contemporary evangelical Christianity probably uh, claims or gives the most lip service. To being uh, Bible-following Christianity. In many ways, it's the least Bible-following Christianity of all time in the church, and, um, and therefore, there's a lot of restoration work to be done, and that has to begin by rethinking things from a thorough study of Scripture, and then uh, building a Christian community that's kind of w- willing to relive that, because the things of Christ cannot be lived except in corporate community. You, you can't uh, walk with God by yourself. Uh, there's you know there's this uh, concept called divine tensions that I like to talk about, and uh, things that are seemingly paradoxical but are not antithetical. And you know there are some individualistic aspects of the Christian life. Everyone decides for God or not. For God themselves, uh, no one can be born again for you, no one can repent for you uh, there's lots of things that you you know, no, no, you know you can have people around your bedside when you're dying, but you're in in a sense you die between you and God, and in many ways, you live your life between you and God, but on the other hand uh Christianity and the Bible make no sense, apart from living it in a Christian community that's really a family of families. And uh, you can't really make any sense out of the New Testament if you don't approach it that way, that God always desired in the Old Testament, Exodus 19, for instance, Moses says that uh, if you indeed obey my voice, then you'll be my special people or my treasured people and my holy nation, and the kingdom of priests, and so forth. God always, his goal from all eternity was to build a people for his own possession that would manifest his glory throughout the whole earth for, uh, by living under his lordship and, and in his spirit and by his ways. And uh, the New Testament uh, simply changes who that group of people is. Uh, Jesus said, I will build my church, and that's in contradistinction to Moses' church. Or, you know, The word for congregation in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament is ecclesia, just like it, the word for church is in the Greek New Testament. So anyway, we will get back to that series next week. And uh, this week we're going to take one week off. I thought I would give some thoughts on the current COVID-19 pandemic, and not so much uh, from a political point of view or even from a biological or medical point of view, but more for, for how should we as a Christian community endeavoring to live our life under the Lordship of Christ, uh, endeavor, endeavoring to love and serve one another, endeavoring to manifest the glory of God uh, to the world around us by how we live, so how should we respond to this present uh, situation? Now, uh, you hear uh, the three words I've used, uh, I've heard used the most to describe what uh, almost every nation in the world now is, uh, it, it, it's around 80, 85% of nations are in, encouraging their people to uh, to do social distancing I sometimes hear the word quarantine uh, in our brothers and sisters in India. Uh, mostly, say lockdown. That's the word that uh, they, the, it's you know, lockdown. You hear that some in America, uh, and of course, you hear the word social distancing. So again, uh, these are just some thoughts on the coronavirus, um, especially with regard to the ideas of quarantine, lockdowns, or social distancing. And I have five major points, and, and with each of them, I'm going to read some scriptures. And if you just look at your outline, you'll notice that I have the most scriptures with point B and point E. And uh, I'm hoping to manage my time in such a way that we give the most attention to point B and point E. Those are uh, the, the, the points that I most feel the Lord would have us to emphasize. So let's get into this. So the first point I want to make is that quarantine or, or social separation is as old as the, as the law of Moses. Okay. Um, I, as far as I understand, you know, I have a master's degree in, in history and my specialty was ancient history. But uh, I am an old guy, so I came from a time period when that meant mostly the studying of Western history and of course, the antecedents of Western history being Middle Eastern history, such as the Egyptians, the the Hebrews, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, and so forth. So I uh, can't. I don't know as much about, say, uh, Chinese history or um, any other Asian history. I don't know as much about the histories of of the Native American peoples that had uh, several advanced civilizations were here already before the Europeans came. Um, but as far as I know, the the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, were the first people in the world to use the idea of quarantine. And it's an idea that's very uh, much... Uh, emphasized in the Pentateuch, that is the five, book, Pentateuch being five books, uh, sometimes called the Books of Moses, the Law of Moses, the Pentateuch, uh, or of course the Torah. And uh, some some passages are in your notes that you can look up. We're not going to go and read them all. Uh, Leviticus chapters 13, 14, and 15, all three chapters. Uh, there's several... Uh, References to it in Numbers, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, chapters 31, chapter 31, verses 11 through 20, uh, Deuteronomy 23, 10 through 14, 2 Kings. You, you see some references, three different references in 2 Kings and Second Chronicles. Now, mostly when, um, uh, when the law of God uh, talks about quarantining, it's mostly doing, uh, talking about it with regard to leprosy, but it, it, it uh, does use it with regard to some other biological functions, discharges and uh, birthing of babies and so forth. But quarantining was uh, a basic biblical idea and practiced by the Israelites, uh, some people don't know this. Uh, you wouldn't get this out of a modern history class. But in the 14th century, when the plague was sweeping Europe, the plague was little uh, experienced by the, by the Jewish people throughout, scattered throughout Europe because they avoided the plague by using quarantine principles. And so there were many more uh, of the Christian uh, population uh, of, of Europe that was affected by the plague than there was uh, Jewish or Hebrew people. Uh, they were, uh, had much many less cases of the plague. Now, um, when you look at uh, the law of God, there's always the question, you know, we are uh, at Grace Christian Fellowship, we are a brand of theology that, that includes what is called theonomist. Where we put a much higher value on the law of God than most evangelicals, who tend to be a branch of a uh, type of theology called antinomianism. A- antinomianism just means against the law. So most modern Bible-believing Christians, how they relate—if really, uh, you—if you'll notice—if um, any of you were brought up in—I uh, don't want to name names—but I know some of the churches, <laughs> some of you were brought up in. And in uh, some of the backgrounds, and almost all of you, I've asked at, at times, did you ever have many sermons or many lessons or many much study of the Old Testament? And I, you almost hear no all the time. And that's partly because when you uh, study anything, you're bringing a set of assumptions to the study. You, whether you know it or not, you have what Thomas Kuhn called a paradigm. Thomas Kuhn was a professor at uh, Case Western Reserve University. He's long since passed away, but he wrote a book that was the most, probably the most important book I read in the 1970s called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And his basic idea is that all academic disciplines have a set of assumptions that they're bringing to the table with the study, and those assumptions uh, determine methodologies. They determine what questions would be considered important, and what methodologies would be that would the question would be attacked with. And therefore, they're highly determinative of outcomes. And what Kuhn was postulating, uh, he, his ideas were originally uh, applied to science, but uh, they, those ideas became so popular. I remember in 1991, I was working for a bank, and I was uh, uh, studying a number of videos on how to market this particular uh, type of financing and so forth. And they started off by talking about Thomas Kuhn and paradigms. (laughs) And uh, that what they were trying to do was bring a new paradigm of how to look at this particular way of doing business. And I thought, wow, Thomas Kuhn is now... uh, you know, being studied by people who get MBAs or whatever. So, the idea of a paradigm is, is again, you have certain assumptions, and they, that they start to become um, normative or well received by a high percentage of people in, in the academic circles. And again, those assumptions determine what questions are considered important, what methodologies should be used, and therefore they're highly determinative outcomes. But because the assumptions aren't necessarily corresponding to reality, eventually there's more and more questions which can't be answered with the current methodologies and so forth. And so some young upstart kid or something will come along with a different set of assumptions and say, we're not looking at the thing wrong, right, correctly. Normally, that person is scoffed at, laughed at, flunked out uh, of, of the university or whatever and uh, told uh, that they're stupid and so forth. But eventually, if the par- new paradigm uh, answers the questions better and works more toward re- real things, eventually that paradigm will gather ascendancy. So you can think of it in terms of like the the, uh, story of the emperor that had no clothes. Uh, Everybody bought into the paradigm that if you were wise, you could see these uh, fancy threads the emperor had, which he didn't actually have any. He just was in his underwear. But uh, no one wanted to be considered stupid, so no one questioned uh, what what they were told they were supposed to see, even though they weren't seeing what they were supposed to see. And uh, so finally, some kid goes, hey, the emperor doesn't have any clothes on. He's in his underwear. And, uh, and then a paradigm shift happened. So uh, e- even with the Bible, uh, the study of hermeneutics is the study of how we interpret the Bible. And whether you know it or not, you've been uh, given and you're bringing a set of assumptions about the Bible to the text when you read it. And so the, the biggest thing that we have to rediscover is biblical assumptions and uh, biblical paradigms, for, and that is biblical hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible the way Christ intended it to be interpreted, the way the Holy Spirit intended it, uh, and so, a lot at Grace Christian Fellowship, we talk a lot about the apostolic hermeneutic, meaning how did the apostles use what we now call the Old Testament? They would have just called the Scriptures. I like to refer to them as the Hebrew Scriptures, um, because I don't, I really don't like the term Old Testament as much, because the Hebrew Scriptures from Genesis to Malachi contain uh, six, five major covenants. Well, six, and um, and so they're really not an old covenant, they're a series of old covenants. And uh, so that's, and, and of course, the the fact that God is a covenant making and a covenant keeping God is a major paradigm to bring to the text with you, uh, looking for how, how God acts covenantally. Now, one difference in the biblical idea of social separation or quarantining is that it was always applied to people who had a sickness, like leprosy or what have you. What we now have is people being asked to quarantine themselves that aren't sick so that they won't be exposed to people who are sick. So that, that's a fundamental shift that's a modern thing. And so that, that's something that's kind of important to understand, that that's very different than biblical quarantining. So, um, and you know, biblical quarantining uh, is highly political in our, in our culture. I remember uh, when the AIDS epidemic first hit, and I believe it, it was... Uh, started to get a lot of a uh, little bit of news attention in the late '70s, but mostly it was about the, the mid to late '80s I believe when it became well known publicly and I remember uh, actually teaching that uh, uh, the biblical principle of how to handle such a thing would be to quarantine those who uh, have the disease and I, and I remember laughing and go, if anybody ever proposed that, they would be uh, Hated as you know, as a bigot and in some evil anti, you know, anti homosexual or whatever. But in fact, uh, what we now do to stop the spread of AIDS is we ask a, a group of people uh, who are, um, for various reasons, generally practicing a very promiscuous sexual lifestyle. To stop the spread of that disease sexually, <laughs> think about the logic of that. So that would be a little bit like saying uh, we're gonna to ask the people who have the flu uh, to to head up the campaign of not spreading the flu. <laughs> you know, um, we're at you know we're at when it comes to twenty seven sexually transmitted diseases. We're asking the people who con- contracted those diseases, you, uh, and those most of those diseases are pretty difficult to, to contract if you practice biblical monogamy. Uh, we're asking the people who don't practice that and haven't historically practiced that to stop the spread of those diseases, uh, when in fact they're, they have a long-term track record of not being able to... Uh, exercise self-control in those areas. And that's our main, uh, that's the main way we are trying to keep those diseases from growing and spreading in our population. Because nobody would suggest that there should be, that there could be some way of uh, identifying a person who has a particular sexually transmitted disease by you know, having them have a little mark on their arm or something like that, unless unless they're in fact healed, or uh, you know, there's some sexually transmitted diseases that are that are treatable. Uh, anyway, I, you know, controversial subject there, and I usually try to avoid controversy. I'm a lover, not a fighter. But uh, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, the, the main difference between my, biblical quarantining and what we're trying to do increasingly with various modern uh, viruses and so forth, this uh, was very common with the SARS virus, the first uh, COVID round, um, was we're basically trying to actually ask those who are not sick to protect themselves from those who are sick. Uh, that, so that's a, a, a slight paradigm change, not, not a slight, a large paradigm change. Now, when you uh, look at the law of God in the Bible, there are lots of different schemes for categorizing it. So one such scheme that's, uh, that I just uh, picked up on a certain Baptist theologian that I won't name uh, is that there's, he would divide the law into three types of, of commandments, One, moral commandments, two, ceremonial, and three, judicial or societal. Now, in terms of the moral commandments, they're listed in the Ten Commandments, which are first and foremost listed in in Exodus chapter 20, and then again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law, and it's partly named that because Deuteronomy chapter 5 uh, repeats the Ten Commandments word for word from Exodus 20. Now, the all laws have case laws. Uh, if you were to go to law school and become lawyer Teresa or something, or t- turn in the, you know, billboards for, with a, a call to Teresa or whatever. You know, uh, you would study case laws. And so the Ten Commandments, this is important if you don't know this already. We've taught on this many times here. But we do get some new people here and again. And and, uh, hopefully the people in India are watching. In the Bible, the case laws are primarily interpreted by what is sometimes referred to as ordinances or statutes, statutes, but not statues, statutes, statutes, uh, which are hypothetical case laws that tell us like, if your ox gores someone and you didn't know that he had, you know the propensity to, to, to gore people or whatever, then this is the remedy and so forth. And they, the, the hypothetical case laws are, depending on the translation of scripture you're reading, are sometimes called uh, ordinances, sometimes statutes, sometimes they're called decrees. But when you're reading a psalm like Psalm 119, that is uh, um, 22 22 sections of 8 verses each, it's what's called an acrostic psalm. Normally an acrostic psalm, each line starts with a progressive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, But in Psalm 119, each stanza of eight verses does that. So there's 22 stanzas of eight verses each, which makes for 176 total verses, right? And each one starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet as it goes all the way through the alphabet. In the whole of Psalm 119 are meditations on the importance of God's word. So depending on the translation you are uh, reading, you'll hear read verses like "How I love your statutes, how I love your ordinances, how I love your decrees," and most people just think of that uh, as "Oh, I I love think, you know your word in general," but that's a specific component of the Word of God. It's the hypothetical case laws that are given to help us understand. Uh, like the commandment to keep the Lord's day holy. Okay, so as an example, if you were to read Leviticus chapter 23, the whole chapter is about how to keep the Sabbath, Shabbat, and how uh, to keep the uh, three major festivals that Israel was to celebrate before the Lord each year. Passover, Passover. Uh, the feast of booths and the feast of weeks—is that correct? Uh, so, uh, the, another example is Leviticus 18, is all kinds of sexual laws, like you can't lie with your father's wife. You know, if you're in other words, if your father has more than one wife, or your mother died or whatever, and he's remarried, you can't. Uh, and let's say your father dies or something, you can't marry. Someone he was married to, or something that would be considered incest in the Bible and uh, is a violation of God's law. And uh, not lying with someone of the same sex, or you know, as gross as it sounds, not lying with an animal, and all these kind of things are the whole uh, chapter of Leviticus 18 are such sexual uh, prohibitions and so forth, all of which are what thou shall not commit adultery means. The whole chapter gives contents. Now, if you study the structure of the Ten Commandments, in the Bible, the first represents the whole. When we give to the Lord, the first thing we do is we give a tithe on... uh, Are you getting cold? I'm sorry, I had to turn it way... John, you could turn the temperature back up a couple degrees because I was just so hot, I turned it way down to like... 64 or something. <laughs> um, so we are going to eventually invest in just a, an, an air conditioning unit that points right here. Uh, we, we've discussed, Nathan and I have been discussing, the problem is it's going to be somewhat expensive, so we're not, not doing it just yet. Um, so I can be co- cooler than the rest of you. Of course, I am cooler than the rest, no. Uh, <laughs> that, was, that was for John Luke and Sam Wane. The two co- coolest young men I know. But, um, so, I forgot where I was at. We're talking about case laws. Uh, what's that? Yeah, okay, the first represents the whole. So, in the scriptures, the, you know, the reason we, you, you give 10% of your gross income to the Lord and uh, we believe you should give it to the church you belong to. and But then you should give other income t- to other Christian causes. That's called an offering. But the tithe is not an optional. It's optional whether you have a good attitude or not about it. But it's not optional whether you pay it. And because the, the tenth, the f- first tenth, uh, represents the whole. And the reason you tithe on your gross is... To tithe on your net would be be elevating the the role of government and taxes above the role of God. And so so in the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods besides me, all the other nine are violations of that one. In other words, if you break any of the other nine, you have to break the first one to, to do so. And you can't steal without having something that's an idol in your heart that, that is above God. You have a God besides God, and so I might steal Sam's Corvette or, <laughs> or uh, his really cool car or something. If you... What's that? What's that? You guys, yes, currently Sam's car, he'd be okay if I stole, but uh, <laughs> we're, uh, so anyway, I, I got to move this along. So uh, the moral commandments have all these case laws that help us understand what they are. A good example of that would be in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you were heard that you're not supposed to murder But I tell you, if you even are angry at your brother, then uh, you've murdered him in your heart. Right? So Jesus is actually uh, actually applying a case law so that we can understand what thou shall not kill is. Because murder is diminishing uh, that person in any, any way in your thoughts, hearts, or deeds. So... Therefore, like the first set of commandments are all about our relationship to God. Then the the commandments that have to do with our relationship to our fellow man, they start with thou shall not murder, because again, the first represents the whole and all the rest of the commandments are a type of murder. Just like all the breaking of commandments is a type of idolatry, all the breaking of the social commandments is a type of murder. So this is kind of important. Uh, Hopefully you're following my logic here. So when you steal, it's, it's a type of murder because, you know, Byron Burke's uh, went to college and got a degree and studied when, late at night when his eyes were droopy and, uh, you know, and and then goes to a job every day and spends his hours and hours and hours to make an income to buy uh, whatever, his car or whatever, when you steal it, you're murdering his entire time that he invested in why he has that car in the first place if it hadn't been for this long process of schooling and building mathematical and engineering skills and so forth, he wouldn't have a job, and therefore he wouldn't have the car. And so when you steal his car, it's a type of murder. Hopefully everybody's understanding that. So when you commit adultery, you're, it's actually murdering the family. It's a, it's, that's why it was a capital offense in the Bible. We think of adultery as just really fun and cool in our day and age. That's how Hollywood tries to depict it and so forth. And, uh, it's not, it's a type of murder. Okay, so that's point A of, of my A, B, C, and D. So let's move on. That is that, um. Quarantine is part of God's law, and Hebrew culture, as far as I know, was the first culture ever to use quarantine to stop disease. And we're reversing that, and I don't believe we're doing that wrongly today, because what we now have, uh, ever since the Garden of Eden, when God told Adam and Eve, on the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil— you shall surely die. And if you notice, they didn't physically die that day, but they spiritually died and introduced into the human genome was the, was the power of sin that eventually kills everyone. Everyone who's ever been born has died, except those people who are still living today who are going to die. <laughs> and that uh, death is associated with sin, but it actually grows and develops and advances, much like God's kingdom grows and advances. And the, the amount of power and force and complexity of evil is always growing more so, just as Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds the more, God's solution and redemption in Christ is always being revealed in a greater and greater and greater capacity. And even in our own day, we often, I I don't know about you, but I've often read the Gospels, which I love to read, and I, I hope you've had this thought. You're probably brain dead or something if you haven't. Uh, that wouldn't have been cool to, you know, go with, walk around with Thomas and Peter and Simon and, of course, Jesus. The, like, you know, if you haven't had that thought, I don't, you're, I don't know what you're thinking. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but the truth of the matter is we live in a much greater time to be alive because the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And so we will understand things in Scripture that Peter and James and Luke and people like that wrote that they didn't even understand nearly, even though they wrote it, nearly as much as God will progressively reveal it to his people. And so we live in uh, the greatest possible time to be alive. Now, one of the because uh, sin, death, disease, all that stuff is always progressing, there are diseases today that weren't around a1,000 years ago. You know, the flu pandemic pandemic of 1918, the Spanish flu, as far as anyone knows, was the f- first time the flu virus hit humankind 102 years ago and viruses actually grow and mutate and so forth. And so one of the complexities of this COVID thing is that the gestation period is so long that you have it for 5 to to 12 days before you know you have it, usually. And you're contagious that whole time. So using the principle of quarantining uh, so that you might not get it is actually... Uh, even though that's not what the Bible teaches about quarantining, it's, it's uh, based on the biblical idea of quarantining and just doing what's appropriate for the progression of, of diseases in general. All right. Now, I didn't mean to go into all that that much, but uh, hopefully that's all clear. Point B, loving one another in Christian community. One of the most important things, and this is something that I've, uh, we've actually had uh, half a dozen cases of people in the church not doing this. Uh, so I really, that's why I actually decided to do this message. Um, things like this are a great opportunity to live out what we espouse in Grace Christian Fellowship that we, we love God and therefore we love one another. 1 John 3, how can you say you love your brother whom you have not seen? Or how can you say you love God whom you have not seen if you do not love your brother whom you have seen? Jesus makes it quite clear in many places, especially in John's gospel, that um, our love for one another is actually an indicator of our love for God. And so if we're not behaving or acting according to love, uh, that's very problematic. Now, so the Romans 14 that I've had, uh, Josiah, I hope you're catching it, but the whole point of Romans 14 is don't act as your brother's judge if they have a different level of faith about a certain idea. Right? And so, what's, what, what's inevitable in something like, uh, Thou shalt not commit adultery, hopefully, we would not have differing opinions in grace Christian fellowship about that. But how to practice social distancing, there's room for different uh, practices and interpretations. And the most important thing is to not be arrogant and therefore impose your thinking on other people, but to practice it according to what your best understanding under God is. But if someone else isn't seeing it that way, uh, don't, don't lay your, your guilt trip on them. So point one under B there is there's different responses based on things like various life situations. Uh, my wife and I got a very nice, uh, I guess it's an instant message or whatever, or uh, something like that, or uh, from our son, Victor, whose wife has a type of rheumatoid arthritis that uh, can be very debilitating and eventually will be life-threatening, uh, and he uh, talked to our, to the. he sent this to uh, Catherine and I and all the brothers and sisters in the family about why they are doing this social distancing thing to the max. Like when they have the mail comes, the mail's going in the garage for two or three days before it comes in the house because the virus can actually live on paper or cardboard for, I, I guess, a couple days or whatever. Um, so, uh, when they have groceries delivered, it's going in the garage for two or three days before it comes in the house. Because they're in a life situation where if his wife, uh, if Heather, our, our daughter-in-law, if she got COVID-19, she would be in a life-threatening situation, um, We've had a few people come to church that, you know, today we're pretty much this, got I think we have 16 people here, all of whom were praying an important role. They were playing a musical instrument, doing scripture readings, running the camera, or something. But we've had a number of people coming that aren't necessarily needed to be here. In, in a couple of cases, I actually put my foot down last week and said, uh, uh, Talk at the leaders meeting, I said, I don't want this person or that person to come if they have physical limitations that could make, if they catch COVID-19, that, that it would be extra specially uh, life-threatening. To, to be going to church, if you're in that situation, is just plain stupid. And of course, we all desire fellowship because we were made by God to desire fellowship, if you don't desire fellowship, something's wrong with you. You're probably not a Christian. We know we passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. If you don't like the fellowship, that, that probably is in, an, an indicator that your relationship with God has not start, begun. I often shared, share with people how much I hated my parents' Jesus freak friends before I was a Christian, and I couldn't stand that they came over to the house and sang songs of praise. And, and then when I ran into them in the grocery store, they'd say, oh, I'm praying for you. And I go, leave me alone. Get out of my life. <laughs> like, don't pray for me. You know, I'm cursing you. No, no, I didn't. I, I wasn't that mean. But, uh, uh, you know, and then be, after I became a Christian, I would stay up till 2 in the morning and asking questions about the Bible or singing songs of worship with them and so forth. So, um, you know, we know we passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. But sometimes, you, have, you know, there's a time, as Ecclesiastes 3 says, for embracing and a time to shun embracing. And this is a time to shut embracing for most of us. Now, the other thing is different people have different understandings of what being safe in this particular time period is. And finally, different people have different temperaments. And you're going to find that people who have a, a giftedness from God uh, that makes them uh, kind of a quieter temperament or, or, or whatever, they're less aggressive and bold, that, that affects how they think about stuff like this. And so if we don't take that into account when we're relating to our brothers and sisters, then we're not walking in love and we're sinning against Christ. you know uh the the day they decided to we were having a leaders' meeting on a Monday night, and they I think the next day that it was it was supposed to kick up a notch to where you were uh, you know like everyone was practicing social distancing or whatever and I sat uh, next to Leah Gray at that meeting, and she uh, exhorted me strongly to follow those guidelines and how they were going to follow these guidelines and so forth. And so I have not gone over to visit the Greys since that day at their house because I don't think it would be very loving to do so. And I normally pop in to visit the Greys unannounced, uninvited, or whatever, about once a week or so. And uh, usually they're quite uh, amiable and glad that I came, Uh, especially if they're still awake. But uh, (laughs) So let me just say this. Walking in love in terms of social distancing is to follow the lead of the most conservative member of your household to do what the the person who practices social distancing to the highest degree should, that's what you should do in your household, whether you're a married family or a single household. Because otherwise, you're violating that person's sensibilities to the point where you're causing them anguish. You're causing them to be unduly worried. Now, we also have a a Christian community that there's very few people that are over 40 in our community, and therefore a lot of people, especially people who are 25 and younger, still have the kind of relationship with their parents where they talk to their parents often about stuff like that and would be highly influenced by what their parents think about what they should be doing. And so it would be only loving to take that into account, because if the parents are encouraging them to be quite conservative about it and we're not uh, honoring that, then we're not walking in love. So whether you're married or single, this is a this is an area you know my wife and I do a lot of marriage counseling and uh we we ourselves went to marriage counseling in 1991, 90 and 92, and uh, the guy who helped us named Dr. Paul Mitchell. Uh, John Luke knows him. Um, he had an idea he taught us called the ba- that the, that every relationship has a balance of power in it. Whether you're on a basketball team together or. Uh, Daniel and Lily Gray, believe me, Daniel and Lily Gray have a balance of power, and Daniel wants the power. Because <laughs> I, I don't have to go to the Gray's house to know that. I just know that he's the older brother. And uh, so hopefully uh, David and Aruna Yamarte are watching this, and uh, they tell a story about their daughter Hannah, who's now 10, uh, but when she was 5, uh, she was, or seven something in that range, five, six, something like that. She was praying in front of a, their church, which is a large group of people. There's five, four or 500 people present. And uh, she, uh, praying with a little microphone or whatever, and she prayed that her younger sister Golda would do better at honoring her and obeying Hannah, that is, you know, obeying the big sister and uh, honoring the big sister. So they love to tease Hannah about this, and I, I tease Hannah about that myself all the time. She, uh, they're, both those girls are, like, wonderful young ladies. And uh, so they're a lot of fun. But, um, you know, so all relationships have a balance of power. If you know John uh Byron Burks lives in a household with his two brothers, believe me, there's a balance of power between the brothers and uh and it's uh often an ongoing negotiation, right? So it's very important, especially in marriage, if one of the partners often this uh, unfortunately historically this is more often the husband than the wife is the is the stronger personality uh you know a masculinity tends to be something that you're strong about making decisions convictions, your emotions are out there and and all that and and therefore uh you know a husband might be uh, allowing a lot more people to come over to the house and uh you know going to a lot more people's houses and being a lot looser about their interpretation of social distancing than the wife is happy with and so if he does that he's not walking in love he's abusing the balance of power in the relationship in a situation like this i what i am saying i hope this is very clear the balance of power in terms of how you practice social distancing in every household should be that you follow uh, the comfort level of the most conservative person in the household. Because there is just no reason in this type of a situation to be uh, pushing your will on somebody that you're inevitably adding fear to their life and concern for even the possibility of their losing their life that is just not loving at all now some of these verses romans we don't have time for but notice some of the things that i underline in you know let love be without hupokresis is the greek word which means to wear a false mask uh you know in in in, uh, in drama the Thesbians have those the big mask from the greeks the 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 sad mask and the happy mask, and and, uh, and those are the symbols of, of uh, drama or whatever. And those are hoopla creases. They're where, you know, that's when you uh, yell at your wife in the parking lot, and then you come in the foyer way, and you, you know, maybe Teresa's the greeter, and, and she said, how are you doing? Oh, praise Jesus, Teresa, I'm just doing so well. You know, my wife's crying in the parking lot, but uh, but I'm doing well. <laughs> you know, that's called a, that's a hupocresis. That's hypocrisy. That's wearing, being two-faced. So give preference to one another in honor. That this, if there's ever a time for that, this is it. Devoted to prayer. Do not be haughty in mind. You know, when I read even Christians, even people in our churches, comments on Facebook, sometimes I I cringe and go, how how the, are these people such know-it-alls? Now, I, I would say there's definitely guys like Jeff Burks and maybe Nathan Hager, I don't know. There's definitely some guys in our church who know more about this than I do. In fact, I called Jeff Burks to... Ask his opinions about several things along this COVID thing because I knew he would be more read up on it, and uh, because he reads up on lots of things. And so, uh, but you know, I have a master's degree in history. I have studied the Bible for forty five years. I'm not an idiot, but I some of the comments I read sometimes on Facebook and stuff. It's like, how did you get to be such a know-it-all? So one of one of the things I want to address here is this: when it says, "Don't be a haughty in mind," look look to the right where it says, "Do not be wise in your own estimation." Our culture disciples you to be wise in your own estimation. Our culture imparts that very aggressively. And it doesn't impart respecting what's right in the sight of all men. It, in fact, imparts passing judgment on anyone's opinion that's not your opinion. And so what I mean by this thing about being wise in your own estimation, you know, they're always saying, like, call in and put your vote for this and that. And and it's just amazing to me, like, Facebook is like a comedy thing to me because, I, read, I, I uh, went back to, to my high school friends, college friends, uh, relatives. You know, I keep up with hundreds of friends on Facebook, uh, even though I only read it an hour or two a week, usually sometimes, or sometimes maybe three or four hours a week, I go through and read stuff. But it's amazing to me how much our culture makes it a, a know-it-all And so many people have strong, aggressive, assertive, very clear opinions about things they don't have enough background to have such an opinion. That is the disease of our modern culture. Everybody is a know-it-all. And our culture breeds that. And people comment on all kinds of things that they think they're qualified to comment on, who, you know, I was watching a video uh, by these people the other night against the Bethel Redding Church in California. Now, I'm the first to say there's some things in that church I might not agree with or whatever, but what I thought was interesting was they made statement after statement after statement. I've read a few of their books. I've listened to a few of their tapes. I visited the church once. Uh, with my son, John, we went out for a conference there. Uh, we used one or two of their books as a book of the year. Uh, there's several of their books that I read that I really don't like a lot, quite a bit. But what was amazing is this video made statement after statement after statement about what the Bethel Reading Church says and teaches that was totally false. They had never done, the, they they were negative on the Bethel Reading Church but they had never actually done their homework to know what the Bethel Reading Church believed, taught, or stood for. They were just uh, criticizing it. And our culture disciples people in being that way. And uh, I, I do not like politics for a number of reasons. Uh, the last political candidate I liked was in the 80s. That is the 1780s. And um, so, um, um, you know, since then they've been downhill quite a bit. But uh, what is amazing to me is the number of opinions people have that Obama said and did this and that Trump said or did this that are completely false. Obama never said or did that, nor did Trump ever said or did this. And there's become this atmosphere in our culture in terms of the political climate where the Democrats hate the Republicans and the Republicans hate the Democrats. And there is no one is listening to the others. No one even understands the worldview or assumptions of the others. And it's all criticism all the time. That's what you get discipled in on Facebook. If you read, I never comment on Politics or social issues on Facebook or any other social media because it's counterproductive. Look down in Philippians 2. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's an, that, that can be walked out by letting the most conservative member of the household Dictate how you're going to live. At our house, um, Catherine's now working from home. I've always worked from home. If I work, I don't know if I work. But uh, <laughs> you know, but uh, I felt like working the other week, so I laid down and prayed about it until the feeling went away. But uh, <laughs> um, you know, but we live with Logan Carr. And Logan is a blessing and a half to, to have his uh, housemate because uh, uh, we basically made a deal with him that uh, we wouldn't charge him rent room or board, rent utilities, groceries, none of it, as long as he did the dishes a few times a week. And Logan does uh, the dishes like a few times a day. Uh, not, not really, but he does so many things that are above and beyond the call of duty that it makes our lives much more wonderful when Logan's around. So, um, but the fact is he goes to a job every day and he comes back every day and therefore he's in, in socially interacting with all sorts of people. And so if you, if you don't, if to really do this lockdown thing, if you're really doing it, then you're actually never leaving the house and you're never interacting with anybody outside the house. And very few people are doing that. In great Christian fellowship, anyway, so don't be each other's judges i'm being a lot more conservative i never i uh, I was a hugger until about the mid eighties uh, after our our culture that is the seventeen eighties no no i'm just kidding <laughs> no i'm just kidding uh, when I was just a little tight but uh you know, John Luke asked me how I knew so much about the War of Independence when I was just a little kid back then. But, uh <laughs> no. and uh, so... Um, um, uh, let's jump down to Colossians 3 there. I love these, this passage a lot because he says as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. In other words, the Bible intertwines, inextricably intertwines loving God and loving one another everywhere. And it's always saying that uh, your measure of how well you actually love God is not how many hours you read the Bible, how many times you have people over for prayer, or a bible study or whatever it's how well you love and especially the hardest members to love of your household if you if you did live at our house that would be me (laughs) i'm always the hardest guy to love so um colossians goes on to say those who've been chosen by god Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We could spend some time talking about those words. You could do a whole good teaching on them. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That's a very important thought. The Bible always equates our need to forgive one another with how much we are forgiven by God. And that's the whole meaning of the parable in Matthew 18 of the rich ruler who uh, owed his master somewhere in the neighborhood of $15 million in contemporary money. And his master graciously forgave him the debt, yet we want to uh, hold our unforgiveness towards someone just because they raped and murdered us. And what we did towards God was so much worse than rape or murder. That's what the Bible is saying all the time about forgiveness. But then he goes on to say, beyond all these things, put on love. So what? It, this is why I've loved, always loved this verse in Colossians. Love is something that's beyond all the other things that come previously on that list. Now, I would, if you were halfway honest with yourself and you... Having a heart of compassion instead of uh, criticism and judgment. Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. And anyone here perfectly patient with their roommates all the time? Bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Just as the Lord forgave you to that degree. And love is something beyond all that. I think what I'm submitting to us is we have a long way to go to learn how to love. And this current crisis is a perfect opportunity to grow in it. 1 Peter 4.8, keep fervent your love toward one another. We're running out of time, so let's flip over the page. Redeem the time toward outsiders, especially on social media. I think a lot of people comments in our church and some people stand out more than others are just not loving on nor wise. (sighs) Social media is not, um, I tailor, although, uh, I always deal with the same information and the same truths. I deal with each individual, uh, individually as to how I help them see it when I'm leading people to Christ, when I'm discipling, so forth. I would never put anything important on Facebook. Never. And some people put stuff on Facebook that uh, you just are not thinking at all about how unbelievers think or process. And I'm gonna, I'm, I feel very called of God to help us with that at this point. I'm gonna be talking to individuals in particular that are unwise in their use of social media. Don't, uh, don't divide and drive people away unnecessarily. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. The gospel is full of offenses. Don't add to it by being offensive yourself. Does everybody hear this? Colossians 4, uh, 2 through 6 says, devote yourselves to prayer. We could do a lot more of that during this season. Pray with your households. I'm amazed how many times I meet with single households and they have individuals in the household that aren't attending the prayer meetings regularly. Now, and, and though people will say, well, I'm on a different schedule. Listen, I'm 63 years old. I've been doing all-nighters since 1970, 50 years. You know, I'm here giving this message, and I slept an hour or so last night. And I'll get to bed sometime around 2 or 3 this morning when I'm done with my last evening appointments. And I trained my body when I was 17 or 18 to be a Christian. Which means, could you not watch with me one brief hour? It's amazing to me how soft we are on ourselves. You know, sometimes you might need to work 48 hours without sleeping. And you should be able to do it. And so if, you're, if you live in a household and your wife or your husband's on a different work schedule or whatever, you can find two or three times a week to pray with one another. And if you have to, you know, I, I now have, uh, I'm spending probably as much time discipling people by Google Hangouts and so forth in India as I am in the U.S., And that means I start my first appointments four hours sooner than I used to every day in order to do that. And sometimes I have to change my schedule in the afternoon so that I have a break for a couple hours so I can go back and take a nap. You could at least do that to pray with your roommates. I hope I never hear again that... This or that person in the household is not attending household prayer. I don't believe you should have household prayer every day as if you have situations where it's tough on people's schedules, but you can do it two to three times a week so that you can experience Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to live together, dwell together in unity. That's verse 1. Verse 3 ends with, For there that is where brothers dwell together in unity, the Lord commanded a blessing, life everlasting. Jesus defines life everlasting in John 17, 3, as this, that this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the Father, and the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Do you want to know God? Then get your butt out of bed and pray with the other people in your household, even though you might have to sleep three hours, pray for two hours, and sleep three hours? Where's your faith? Do you even, have you ever heard of God? I'm a little bit upset about it. We have too many households that never have meals together and never worship together and never pray together and don't uh, do each other's chores and do each other's laundry and take into account what the other person wants in terms of dinners and entertainment and so forth, we really need to grow in love. Because the world is watching how we live at Grace Christian Fellowship. And they know by the kind of a spirit that God puts on the church whether people are going to prayer or not, or they're too tired. Devote yourself to pray. Uh, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders. Make making the most of opportunity. Look look at verse. Six, let your speech always be with grace. Let me tell you, like I hear about people who have this kind of outreach and this kind of outreach, and they're involved in this social justice issue and that social justice issue. And then I, I wanna ask, where's the fruit? Jesus said in John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, and I, but I chose you and I appointed you to bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. If you are doing the will of God instead of just being self-righteous and too harsh and too hypocritical and if you're extending grace there should be some fruit. Now I can understand. I the first few months I was a Christian, I led quite a few people to the Lord because of my brother's funeral. Then I went through a 5-year period in college where I was one of the youngest brothers in the community and I was studying the Word uh, minimum of three hours a day, and I was living uh, in the dorm, and, and we had dinner every night with eight or so brothers. And uh, as far as I know, I only led one young man in the dorm to Christ. A guy named Bob Cooner, who I'm still friends with. And I actually didn't even end up being the person who prayed with him when the night he prayed, he, and a bunch of the others prayed with him. And I was studying that night. But, you know, then, you know, the, when the elders asked me to start the campus ministry for a number of reasons, it took about a year and a half. So, before it started bearing a lot of fruit. So, I would say I was probably seven years in Christ before I was regularly leading people to Christ, like a fisherman who's pulling five or ten fish in, you know, every year. But since that time, I've probably averaged leading. Uh, 10 or 15 people a year to Christ. And I understand that some people are more gifted at that. You know, I, Deanna is probably the most gifted person I've ever worked with in that respect, more so than me. Sometimes she helps me now and teaches me. But uh, I, I understand that, it, that uh, you know, even in the natural, but let, let, let's, let me tell you something. If you don't know this, Everyone's here is old enough. I'm pretty sure everyone in this room knows this. After you're 12 to 14, you have to make efforts not to have kids. <laughs> right? Like, you got to do things like save sex for marriage. <laughs> or, you know, the fact is, healthy bodies reproduce. And so what I'm trying to drive home, let your speech be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, If there's no fruit, stop doing what you're doing and study it differently. You're probably learning from the wrong people. And hopefully that's pretty clear. I can understand there not being a lot of fruit the first few years you're a Christian especially because so many of us come from socially dysfunctional families and we got to build social skills and our lives need put back together and we need deliverance and so forth. But, you know, uh, if, if there's not some clearly measurable, I'm growing in grace and I'm growing in my ability to communicate the truths of God in a way that unbelievers cannot find them understandable and acceptable and are enticed to go that direction, then there's something really wrong. That's what, you know, Paul says, I became all things to all men, and I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may win the more. If you're not winning anybody, then you're not doing the gospel right. Titus 3, I love that phrase, to malign no one, showing consideration for all men. So, so, so many times I read know-it-all comments, even from our church members, on Facebook about government issues, politics issues, social justice issues, and so forth, but sometimes they lack perspective, they lack grace, they last, lack winsomeness. Now, next point pray for government leaders and the lost. Notice in First Timothy 2 1 through 5 there that I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. For kings, we don't have a country that has a king, but we do have presidents, vice presidents. And we, we have a problem in this country where, uh, you know, there's a liberal show on PBS called Frontline, and they did a very good uh, series uh, at one point on the fact that a, a thing that's fundamentally shifted in our culture, that since the late 1950s or so, people go to Washington to become rich, famous, and powerful. And there are almost no properly motivated uh, important politicians in this country. Almost none. We need to pray. You know, if you didn't like Obama, were you praying for him every day? If you don't like whatever his name is, the guy with the funny carrot top here, uh, Trump, uh, are you praying for him every day? I understand that these guys are lost. I understand that they are abusing their offices in many cases. Uh, you know what? They need our prayer, not our criticism in public formats. I believe the Christian response to the COVID-19 uh is to have enough humility to realize uh, the science of, you know, the the trade-off between are we crashing the economy or are we protecting uh, this from becoming a mass plague where millions die? You know, in, in Ohio, we've lost less than 4,000, right? Or is it less than 400, I think? I, I'm not up to date on the numbers. Somebody look how many deaths there's been in Ohio. Look that up real quick, Byron or David, one of you guys that's good at looking. But, you know, obviously we're not in the epicenter of it and so forth, and maybe it'll hit us a little later. But all these things about, like, you know, getting the right kinds of supplies and when, when it will be right to start phasing back in, uh, you know, this or that part of our lives and so forth. Could you be humble enough to shut up and pray? I'm asking everyone in Grace Christian Fellowship to shut up about your opinions of what the government should do. I have met Mike DeWine at times. Um, I understand he's a career politician He decided to be a career politician as a young man. Uh, I personally like him on some levels. I've actually sat with him at a UD basketball game once, and we talked and so forth, and I've met him at Ballwick Hardware before and stuff like that. I used to be involved in a Christian political thing in the 1980s. Um, But... You know, these guys are trying to do their best with a very, very difficult situation that it's a new virus that's behaving in some very modern ways, one of which is that you don't even know you have it until you've had it for quite a while. So that makes it very difficult to stop from spreading. Uh, every time they think they have a prediction on who's dying from it, the demographics of who's dying from it changes. So, just shut up, you demonic, evil, critical spirit, and pray for your leaders as the Bible tells us to. There's no commands that I can find in Scripture that command us to be know it alls or to pray it around like we really know what we're talking about. I have a better education than 85% of the people in Grace Christian Fellowship, and I don't have a clue about half as much as I would need to know to be as opinionated as everybody on Facebook is. And the fact is, when fools have as many opinions as they do, that's a, just a crazy kind of darkness. Pray for your leaders. Pray for the Congress. Pray for the president. Pray for the state representatives. Pray for all the various bureaucrats that are, you know, Dr. Amy so-and-so and, and, you know, all these kind of people. They are people who study, who have doctorates, who have uh, more government experience than I do, and uh, last time I had government experience, I got elected to student council when I was in like ninth or 10th grade. And I went to one meeting and they, they voted on whether the whole, student, whole senior class should, should vote for homecoming queen or whether just the football team should vote for homecoming queen. And I was thinking we should vote on whether we should bomb the administration building or not. So, so I never went back to another student council meeting, even though I was elected and was the representative for our class for a year, because I figured this is pretty lame. But uh, <laughs> so um, that's my last experience with actual official government. So, pray, you know, it's a, it's a vocation. I wouldn't want that vocation. I'd have to stop saying such radical things. <laughs> and I I I'm not prepared to pay that kind of price. But uh pray for our leaders instead of having opinions on Facebook. Lastly, uh we need to have a Christ-centered approach to serving and giving to outsiders. So something we haven't done as much as a church since we had our reading programs in the public school uh, in the early years, you know, feeding the poor, housing the poor, clothing the poor. There's lots of churches who do that stuff. Consider whether the Lord would have you get involved in that. But in my opinion, balance, I wish I had time to read all these scriptures, But especially, look at Luke 10, 38 through 42, the story of Martha and Mary. And then, at the end, Jesus concludes with, Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from. I'm way past time, but this is the most important point, so listen. Uh, You can shoot me later for going over the time. Or sue me or something. Um, Or go to a church that has shorter (laughs) sermons. But... uh, uh, hopefully they that this. Hopefully you got something out of this sermon. If not, you're probably dead, um, or you can't hear very well. Um, the truth is, you know though you know the whole story of Martha and Mary, and Martha was bo- bo- bothered by her many preparations. You know, this week I ministered to a couple people with Bible studies who were super exhausted because they were in a season of doing a lot of meal preparation and so forth during this time of COVID-19. There are churches like Christian Life Center. Uh, what's uh, what's um, uh, Cartwright, uh, Jeff Cart, Cartwright's church over there on Xenia? If, if you want to get involved with that, I will direct you to some churches that we're friendly with that do that. On the other hand, this is you know not going to be acceptable to modern humanistic man, but the poor you have with you always, and you can do what good for them at any time. And what some people do is they're so busy letting their church or or whatever push them into doing all this stuff that they're not taking enough time to study and grow in the Lord. And in the end, what we're trying to do is not just feed the poor during a crisis. We're trying to deliver through Christ, Christian community, and a proper understanding of work and vocation and financial management. We're trying to deliver them from poverty, period. We lead people out of the culture of poverty into the kingdom of God, which is a very uh, labor-intensive, time-consuming process, and you have to know a lot about evangelism, discipleship, counseling, and how to form people in Christ to be successful at that. But we are raising up a group of people who can do that. That's what Grace Christian Fellowship is all about. And we have people like Nathan Hager who at one time when I was used to minister to Nathan, he couldn't keep a job at Bob Evans or at a, you know, like taking tickets at a movie theater. And today he has, I don't know, one of the top five income producing jobs in our church and has had it for some time and uh, is probably the most generous giver to our church uh, although I don't want to give any details because he might not like that, but he gives way beyond his 10% and, and serves a lot of people in a lot of ways. And he was the culture of poverty incarnate five or six years ago. He was like the poster child for the culture of poverty. So... I'm all for relief efforts. You know, in Dayton we had the shooting, we had the tornadoes, we've got this situation now, and there are some really great churches like the Vineyard that, that get involved in doing stuff with that. On the other hand, each person should seek their, the Lord and pastoral counsel about what kind of season are you in And and try to let the Lord lift your mind up to understand that if you become what you're fully capable of becoming, you will walk people out of their need to ever have that kind of help again. And and of course, because of the largeness of what we're doing, we've only succeeded in uh, leading a small group of people a small distance, but a few of those have gone a further distance, and some of those are. That's why we have the discipleship groups, and you know, seven couples on the leadership team already. And and, uh, and but that's just the beginning of sprinkling. It's going to rain, in a, and eventually there's going to be thirty or forty couples on the on, that can do that, and that they can take people from whatever problems that they have social skills, demonic bondages, habits, uh, the need for psychotropic drugs or whatever, and walk them into a place of spiritual, emotional, relational, vocational, financial, marital wholeness. Because that's what Christ came to purchase for us. He came that we might have life and have it more abundantly, in our crazy, spiritually confused, religious nut, knucklehead nutness today, very few Christians are zeroing in on that, but that's, that's what we have to restore, and we are restoring. So whether or not we should get involved with serving meals or whatever, I'm not saying don't, I'm, but uh, I'd like to see our church do a little bit more with that sometimes. I love, like, I love the Victory Project. Consider helping them. They're a great Christian outfit. Uh, uh, Jason and Carla helped them quite a bit. But, you know, of course, many people in our church helped the Miami Valley Women's Center. So there are a few of these kind of causes we're still involved with, even though we no no longer have our uh, elementary school reading programs, which I hope we'll be able to restore. But believe me, uh, you know, even though this is not particularly cr- Christian, the, ph- in a, the philosopher Confucius, Chinese philosopher, uh, said if you feed a man a fish, he'll eat for today. But if you teach him the fish, he'll eat for a lifestyle. What we started out to do, the number one goal stated at the beginning of Grace Christian Fellowship was to bring a kingdom of God community-style church to a level of maturity where we purposely, intentionally, and with success walk people out of the culture of poverty. And we have done that for quite a few, and we're doing it better as time goes on, and you're going to have to study more if you're going to be a part of that. So that's my last point, but that's actually one of the the first reason I did this teaching was, the, was point B about loving one another and not judging one another because we could do better there. And, but the most important point was about the idea of redeeming the time toward God. You know what social distancing or quarantining is good for? Let me, let me make sure everyone is listening. In India, in U.S., there is nobody... In Grace Christian Fellowship of Dayton, nor is there anyone in Grace Christian Fellowship of Bangalore who has fully obeyed the Lord about the amount of time the Lord wants them to spend sitting at his feet, listening to his word, that is, reading his word, and studying good paradigm-shifting books and so forth. There is nobody who's as equipped as they should be And in fact, almost every member of our church is behind what God might want you to be in that respect. So, uh, I'm going to call this the JM principle. I had a pastor whose initials were JM, uh, back in Bowling Green. And JM worked very hard, all the time. And, uh, about every month or two or three, you would uh, call him up and they'd say, well, he's sick and he's in bed. Because he would work so hard, he'd eventually get the flu or a cold or something like that because he wasn't getting enough sleep. And he knew and used to teach us, God makes me go through this, so I'll have that time to spend with the Lord studying and reading and so forth. May I suggest to us, that one of God's sovereign purposes in COVID-19, for Grace Christian Fellowship anyway, because he's got the whole world in his hands, is that many of you are being called to spend more time alone with God. And I would tell you, you're not anywhere near where God wants you to be in your walk with him if you don't enjoy spending five or six or 10 hours alone in your study, reading God's Word, if that's not, like, pretty exciting idea to you. Because there are times when you're called to do that. There are times when you're called to turn off the cell phone. I remember when I reread Dennis Bennett's uh, 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, I decided to read it again because I hadn't read it since the 60s or the 70s. And so uh, I started reading it and I just canceled everything else on my calendar, and I read it. Eight, it. Now I'm a slow reader, and I take notes, and I look up scriptures. So it took me eight hours, but it was eight hours very well spent, and it wouldn't have happened as, with as much fruit and insight and, and experiencing of God's presence had I not shut the rest of my life out of the, my life. You know some of you know that when you call me at certain times of day I don't answer. <laughs> you know if you call me before noon, you're going to voicemail. But <laughs> and uh, even if I do get up early in the morning, I don't take phone calls, I'm reading. So that's kind of my last point for this message and I hope it's the hits home some of you God is wanting to to you to step back Think about all your responsibilities, your schedule, and do a better job of not wasting this time in terms of your spending time with him. There's, there's quite a few people in this church that that should be speaking to if you're able to hear the Lord at all. Amen.